1: Good morning, everyone. My name's Eric Too. I am one of the pastors here at Trinity. Also, a few things. Just to one one correction, one addition, one correction to the announcements. Uh, there's an announcement regarding a prayer meeting in the in the bulletin, and it says uh, when. No, it's, yeah, it says Wednesday. No, it says Thursday, October 17th. It should say Thursday, October 18th. So go with the Thursday, October 18th. Uh, that's that's really our one of our, um, our our new initiatives that we are starting. Uh, it's a prayer meeting, and so that's starting uh, this week. Also, one thing that's not in the bulletin this is an addition. Today is the last Sunday. It's the deadline uh, to sign up for our men's retreat. So, guys, uh, you may be hearing about this for the first time. We do have a men's retreat. It's not in October. It's in November. <laughs> it's the first weekend after October. Uh, but this this retreat, we're really excited about it. It'll be a little bit different uh, than a standard kind of retreat format. What makes it different is that our, our, all of our pastors and elders uh, will be speaking in kind of a, a workshop style. There'll be interaction we'll be sharing from Scripture, also from our stories on on key, key themes that all men face. Um, and so I really, really encourage you, if you're not signed up, uh, to sign up for that. You can also do that on your phone right now, and we won't. We won't hold that against you. Okay. Um, We are, this fall, in a series on the book of Acts. Uh, Acts 1 through 12, specifically. Acts can be read in a number of different ways. It can be read as history. Uh, Acts is the history of the early church, and it answers the question, how did 120 people uh, in the city of Jerusalem who believe that a man from a small town in Palestine was the son of God. He was raised from the dead. Now he was ruling over everything. How did this small group of people become a worldwide movement? Acts tells us the story of how that happened. So it can be read as history. It also can be read um, as a case study or as testimony. For those who struggle with doubts or with some skepticism about Christianity, it answers the question, why did so many people from all kinds of cultures, every belief system you can imagine, how did they become convinced that Jesus was who he said he was and come to orient their entire lives around him? So it can be read uh, that way as testimony. It could also be read as a defense of the church in a time... When a lot of people are wondering, uh, what's the need for the church? Do I need a church to be able to connect with God? What's the place of church in my life? You can read the book of Acts as a defense of the church. But the greatest danger in reading the book of Acts is if we read it like it's a manual. Like if you buy some furniture from Ikea, you get the manual It has no words in it, right? (laughs) For my kid, it just has pictures. And most of us can figure it out. It takes me probably just two or three times. But a manual just takes step one, step two. Do this and you will build your set of drawers. You will build a desk all by yourself. That's an instruction manual. But if we read Acts like an instruction manual, we're reading it backwards. That's not how it's meant to be read. It's meant to be read as a blueprint of how Jesus built the church. It's meant to be read as a blueprint about how Jesus continues to build the church. And that's how we've been reading it in our series so far. And I want us, as we're thinking about Acts as a blueprint, to review chapters 1 through 4 as we come to the place where we are this morning. The passage we heard read from the end of chapter 4. Chapter 1, we saw... The book of Acts begins with Jesus ascending. He ascends into heaven. The church doesn't quite know what to do, so they pray and they wait. Chapter 2, Jesus sends the Holy Spirit on the first day of the church. There's powerful preaching. 3,000 people are baptized and become a part of the church. So there's the first day of the church, the first sermon of the church. And then we see a description of the church the first church ever in all of its awe and joy and vibrancy. It's an amazing picture at the end of chapter 2. Then last week, as Pastor E.C. showed us, uh, there's a story of a lame man. He had been lame and crippled from birth, and he was healed. That's chapter 3. If you look in your bulletin there, we have some of the passage printed uh, of the end of chapter 4, the response to that healing. Look at verse 22. I love how Luke is a historian of great detail because he says there in verse 22, this man was over 40 years old. And I was reading that this week and kind of chuckling because I think Luke, why (laughs) why would he say that? I think he mentions that as if to say, you know it was a miracle if this guy was over 40, that he can walk and get up after he's been crippled all his life because we all know after 40, it all goes downhill. And I'm, I'm going to be 42 in a few months. So I was like, come on, Luke. Maybe that was the first century. But did you know, Luke, that 40 is the new 30 now? So I just had to, had to say that to Luke as I was studying. If you look at um, verse 4 in chapter 4, the result of this healing was 2,000 more people were added to the church. So now it started at 120. Now it's 5,000 people in the city. Everyone was probably thinking at this point, we are unstoppable. Look at what's happening. This is incredible. This is amazing. Things keep getting bigger and better, and people keep responding. But then in Acts chapter 4, Peter and John, the two leaders of the church, after this healing took place, after uh, Peter preached to all the people, 2,000 people came, joined the church. But what happened next is that Peter and John were arrested. They were held in prison. Overnight, They were questioned, and they were threatened by the religious leaders in Jerusalem. And they were told, do not ever speak or teach about Jesus ever again. And so now they're asking, now what? This is the first challenge that the church ever faced. And verses 23 through 31 that we just heard read tell us how they responded to this challenge. They prayed. This prayer is the longest recorded prayer in the book of Acts, which I find interesting and very significant since there are so many times throughout the book of Acts that we're told the church prays and people pray, but this is the longest recorded prayer where we're given the content, what is said in that prayer. What we see is that when the the church faced adversity, when the church faced their first challenge, they prayed. And there are some very important lessons about prayer in this prayer, especially about praying in times of adversity, praying in our challenges. I know many of you, um, in speaking with you, are facing adversity. And some of it we would call maybe light adversity, normal everyday adversity, and some of it is very challenging, very difficult adversity. Some of you have loved ones who are going through great adversity right now. I found out this week my best friend from elementary school, um, we've lost touch, but he lives in Los Angeles. I found out uh, today, or this past week, that he has been diagnosed with cancer. So I got back in touch with him. I texted him and said, I heard the hard news, and I'm praying for you. I don't know exactly where he stands in his faith, but I was wondering, I wonder what he thinks of that me praying for Him. And I think when we're honest, when we're in adversity, when somebody we love is in adversity, sometimes we wonder if we say, I'm praying for you. We wonder what they think. Is that going to make any difference? Prayer. This passage tells us prayer makes all the difference in our adversity. If you're following along and taking notes We're going to look at three ways that it shows us this. How does prayer make all the difference? First, we learn about the grounds for prayer. Why pray? Especially in adversity. Secondly, we learn about the content uh, for prayer. What should we be praying? And thirdly, the goal of prayer. What should I expect for and hope when I pray? Especially when I'm praying in the midst of a challenge. So first, let's, let's look at the grounds for prayer. I think this passage is one of the best places in the Bible to answer the question, why pray? Why should we pray? It shows us the two main starting points or the grounds for all prayer. And I'm going to give them to you right now. Those two starting points or grounds for prayer are our adversity and God's sovereignty. Let me just talk about those one at a time. To see these two things, we need to look at the context of why the church prayed this prayer in context. As I already mentioned, things were going really, really well for the church. Acts said, it says they had a sense of awe and wonder. There was generosity and joy, and they were enjoying the favor of all the people, it says in Acts 2. And you get the feeling here as you're reading this that the momentum is building and boldness is building, and the church was was filled with this sense of God is doing something. Jesus is active. He's blessing us. But then they get hit with their first major challenge. The religious leaders in Jerusalem, they seize them, they imprison them, they threaten them, and they respond in chapter 4, verses 19 through 20, we can't stop talking about what we've seen and what we've heard. And then they're released. Now all their boldness, all this momentum, all their hope, all of a sudden hits a major test, this first major test. These are the same leaders who were threatening them, that crucified Jesus. Uh, Just a few months before this, these same leaders and their threats had sent all the disciples running to abandon Jesus. They left Him out of fear. They denied Him. But verse 23 says, when they were released, they went back to the church. They told them what had happened. In verse 24, it says, when they heard this, they lifted their voice together to God. When faced with adversity, they prayed. This is the first ground for all prayer, our adversity. Why pray? Prayer is how God meets us in our adversity. Based on the prayer that they prayed and the places that they looked in Scripture, which we'll get into as we move into this uh, text, it's clear that they were surprised, and that they were pretty shaken by this adversity. They were thinking, I thought we were doing everything right. I thought we were doing what we were supposed to be doing. We're preaching, we're teaching, we're, we're in community, we're healing people. Why is this happening? And here in Acts 4, in this prayer, God was teaching the early church a very important lesson about their faith, about Christianity. And that was this, expect victories. Expect Jesus to be at work because Jesus is risen. He's doing things. Expect victories, but also expect adversity. Because sin and brokenness and struggle are not yet done away with. Jesus is risen, but he has not yet returned. Expect both. Don't be surprised when adversity comes. God does not promise Christians an adversity-free life or an adversity-light life. Christians will face adversity like anyone else. This is why adversity is one of the main grounds for prayer, one of the main reasons why we must learn to pray, because life will be full of adversity. And we won't be able to make sense of it. We won't be able to mature in it without prayer, unless we meet God in prayer, in our adversities. And you see how they went into the Scriptures. They were trying to make sense of this. They went to the Psalms. The Psalms was essentially their prayer book. They went to Psalm 2 there at the very beginning. And if you see in verses 25 and 26, this is a quote from Psalm 2. They made it their prayer. And it says, why do the nations rage and the people plot futile things? The kings of the earth take their stand. They assemble together against God and against His Messiah, Jesus. What did praying this prayer show them? It showed them a lot, but one thing it showed them is that adversity is not a sign that God isn't working. Adversity is not a sign that God isn't present. Because in Psalm 2... When all the adversity, the nation's rage, they're plotting together against God and against Jesus, and they, they go on to pray in verses 27 and 28 how this was fulfilled in Jesus at the cross. Adversity is not a sign that God isn't working. It's not a sign that He isn't present. Adversity is where God does His best work and when He comes most near. We see this at the cross. The adversity they were experiencing was a part of God's purpose for them. Which brings us to the second grounds for prayer. First is our adversity, the second is God's sovereignty. People often say, if God is sovereign, if He is in control, if He has a plan, then why should we pray? That was a part of a small group. It was like a small group Bible study, and uh, it had a standard format for the Bible study. We would discuss, we would share, we would read scripture together. And then at the end, we would share our prayer requests. Uh, But this particular Bible study leader, when we got to that point, we would all go around sharing. Sometimes we ran out of time, but he would say, you know what? God heard all that. So all I need to do is like pray just really quick prayer. God, you heard everything. You know it all. You're going to do it all. Amen. Now, what would you say about that style of prayer? How does that square with what we're reading here in the book of Acts? But some of us wrestle with that. If we, all, if we said it, if it's going on in our lives, then why do we need to pray about it? That's not how the church handled it here. In Scripture, we're taught a mystery. Humanity is free and responsible, and God is sovereign over all things. What God predestines from eternity, His plan, it happens. And what we do is free, and we're accountable for it. Now, there are a lot of questions that come with that, and there's no way I'm going to address them all. But let me say this when it comes to prayer, if you give up, if you loosen, if you relax God's sovereignty, you take away the grounds for prayer. In the Bible, the the word here is mentioned as predestination, and that sometimes scares us a little bit. Predestination in the Bible, if you look at the, the references where it's used, it's not a doctrine for speculation. It's not a doctrine for the classroom. Predestination is used in prayer and especially in prayer in adversity. Look at Ephesians 1. Look at Romans 8. Let's see how it worked for them. The very first thing they prayed was what? Sovereign Lord, verse 24, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them. The word there for sovereign Lord, some of your translations might translate it master. It's the word despotas. Despot. That is not a friendly word to us. We don't want to think about a despot ruling over our lives. But when it comes to God, there's great comfort in it. He's not the kind of despot we think of that's cruel and harsh. He is loving and his plan is good. And so they pray, Lord, nothing is outside of your authority. Nothing is outside Of your plan. They were saying this, God, you are bigger than our adversity. And then they come to Psalm 2, which not only helped them to make sense of the threats that were happening, that there will be adversity, it also put them their adversity in perspective, in the perspective of God's sovereign plan. Because what does Psalm 2 show? Psalm 2 shows that the worst thing that happened in the history of the world, the cross, was a part of God's plan. The worst thing that could ever happen, God had predestined it to take place. In the worst thing that happened, in the greatest evil in the world, God worked the best thing, God worked the greatest good. They were praying in light of the cross, that God could work good. If he worked good in the greatest evil, he can work good in this evil, in this adversity that I am facing. And the point is this, because God is sovereign, we can not only know that he can do something about our adversity, this is very important, not only that he can do something, but that he is doing something in our adversity, no matter what it is, no matter how bad it is. We don't always see what he's doing. That's what makes it very hard. But in prayer, only in prayer, can we recover and find comfort that he is at work even when we don't know what he's doing. There's a theologian from Sri Lanka, Ajith Fernando, he says this, the perspective of God's sovereignty is perhaps the most important teaching that we need to have in times of crisis. When we go through challenges, when we go through trials, I know for me, what can often happen with us is that we lose perspective. We lose sight of God. Our adversity becomes bigger than God. Our adversity becomes the biggest thing going on in our lives. And our perspective is meant to be recovered in prayer. Those are the grounds for prayer. Adversity, it will come. Prayer is where we meet God in adversity. God's sovereignty, prayer is where we find comfort. Knowing none of our adversity is outside of His plan for us. Those are the grounds for prayer. Let's look at the content for prayer. Why pray? But when we pray, what do we say? What should we pray? Especially when we're in a challenging time. Two things we see uh, from this prayer that they prayed. First, they prayed scripture. In my own experience in prayer and in talking with people as a pastor, there are two main issues people have when it comes to well, what 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 do I pray? How does prayer work? What am I supposed to say? One issue is we don't know what to say, so we become sometimes very repetitive. We think we have to pray in a very religious tone. We don't have the words. I've been praying privately on my own for many years. I've been praying out loud. I'm a pastor. And still times come in my life where I feel like I don't even know what to pray, especially when I'm in the middle of adversity. The second issue people have with prayer is if maybe we don't know what to say, but sometimes we feel like as I look at my prayers, the content of my prayers, I feel like all I'm doing is just asking for things. It's like I'm going to Santa in the mall and I have my list of requests and I sit in his lap and say, and I want this, and I want this, and I want this. Is that all that prayer is meant to be? Look at the prayer that they prayed. Before anyone asks for anything, they pray scripture. They pray Psalm 146. We looked at that in our call to worship. They pray Psalm 2. Friends, this is so important for prayer. Before they asked for anything, they listened. Prayer is not one-way communication. Prayer is meant to be two-way communication between us and God. And in praying Scripture, it's how we listen. And often, how we need to listen before we ask. How we need to listen so we know what to ask. And one of the things that <clears throat> wears a parent down that can wear me down as a parent, I have four kids, is parents, you know, this is when kids barrage us with asking, right? Can I have candy? Can I have that toy? Can I have video games? Can I have TV time? And it just wears you down. It wears you down. And if you're like me, you're just like, fine, just have it all. (laughs) I'm tired of saying no. But the most common thing that parents say when their kids are really young, when they're toddlers, The most common parental um, instruction at that age, I think, is, no, like don't do that. That's dangerous. No, not that. Come over here. But when our our kids get a little bit older, out of the toddler and, and the baby stage, I think the most common parental instruction is, listen, are you listening to me? Are you even listening to what I'm saying? If you listen, you'd find out that what's happening here, what I'm telling you to do, what I want for you It's for your good. If you just follow it, it'll be for your good. We're like that in prayer, especially in our adversity. Father, give me this and this and stop this and prevent this from happening and do this. And that should come in prayer. But first, we need to learn to listen. So we need to pray Scripture. You need to learn how to do that. Uh, Secondly, they prayed for boldness. I think this might be the most shocking thing about this passage. They prayed for boldness, not to be comfortable. They prayed for boldness, not a change in their hard circumstances. They didn't pray for God to take away their adversity, take out the Jewish leaders who are stopping us and who are preventing your plan. Make all this suffering and adversity go away. They didn't pray for that. They said in verse 29, Grant to your servants to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal and work wonders. Wow. For Christians and my Christian friends here, there's immediate application to us. Uh, the, the immediate application in the text has to do with direct threats and persecution, but there's broader application for us as well. For any and all threats that we face or challenges we face in following Jesus. One of the greatest dangers we face in very comfortable Orange County is that we think if there's no direct threat, if there's no direct persecution, that means there aren't any real or serious threats to following Jesus and to making Him known. The question I was asking myself this week was, how many of my prayers are about asking to be comfortable and avoiding boldness? How many of the prayers that I pray are really all about asking God that I might be comfortable and I might avoid the need for boldness? If we think at the end of our lives, what might be said about us, which one would we want to choose? Option one, he was the most comfortable Christian who ever lived. Or option two, she was the most bold Christian whoever lived how might that shape our prayers in prayer by praying they were learning to see their adversity through the lens of the gospel and the cross what happened in jesus greatest adversity we already said god took what seemed like his greatest defeat the greatest loss and from it achieved his greatest victory and win god turned the tables on evil using the greatest evil ever to accomplish the greatest good ever imaginable. That gave them great boldness, remembering the gospel. There's a theologian, uh, his name's Robert Tannehill. He said this, I want to share this quote. In a time of threat, prayer can be a rediscovery of the sovereign God who wins by letting our opponents win and then transforming the expected result. My friends, do you feel defeated? Is there a a place in your life where you feel like you are losing? What this shows us here, this prayer, even when it seems like the opponents of Christianity are winning, even when it seems like the challenges in our life are winning, our adversity is winning, even when it seems like we are losing, our sin is winning, in prayer we remember how God wins by often letting our opponents win and transforming the result. Prayer, especially prayer with others, in community with others. As we pray the cross into our adversity, we remember, we recover. This truth, that our adversity cannot ultimately defeat us. No matter what it is, our adversity cannot ultimately defeat us God will use it all to make us more like Jesus. God will use it all to bring more glory to himself and show the world who he is so we can live with great boldness. So we've looked at the grounds for prayer, our adversity, God's sovereignty, the content for prayer, scripture, and asking for boldness, not to be comfortable. The third thing this passage shows us about prayer is the goal of prayer. We've already been hinting at this, what the goal is not. If the goal of prayer is not for God to keep us from adversity, if the goal of prayer is not that God would change all of our challenging circumstances, if it's not to make my life more comfortable, then you might be asking, well, what is the goal of prayer? What should I expect? What's the purpose? There are many what I would call sub-goals Secondary goals for prayer, but there is one goal that is the ultimate goal, the primary goal. It's the difference between Christian prayer and all other kinds of prayer, all other approaches to prayer, what we would call religious prayer, and even if we could call it irreligious prayer. All religious prayer at its heart is prayer to be kept safe and away from adversity. It goes like this, if I pray faithfully and do good, then God will bless my life. God will keep me from. He will take out my adversity. So prayer is earning God's favor so that he will do good to you. We might say, if I pray in the morning, then I I will have a good day. Shouldn't it be like that? If I pray for my kids, they'll turn out how I want. If I pray for a certain change in my life to be better, to be a good person, then God will surely answer that. If not, then I must not be good enough. I must not be praying the right prayers. I must not be praying hard enough. Do you see what the goal of that prayer is? At the heart, the goal is that God might keep us away from adversity. That's religious prayer. If we could say there's such a thing as irreligious prayer for maybe a secular person, it might be like this. It's a last resort to get out of adversity. God, if you're there, here's a prayer. If you're there, show me. Get me out of this. The secular person is skeptical and cynical about prayer because what's the point of prayer? God doesn't seem to keep us out of adversity. He doesn't answer us, so it doesn't work. Now, these two kinds of prayer look very different on the outside, but they both see the same goal for prayer. You see how they're similar? Both of these approaches to prayer, they don't need God when the adversity is gone. Thank you, God. I got what I want. I'll come back to you when I'm in trouble again. They don't need God anymore when the adversity is over, when things are good. Prayer is a means to an end. But Christian prayer, what is it? Prayer is a means to God. The goal of Christian prayer is to be with God. So much of our struggle and disappointment with prayer is because we have the wrong goal. Where is this in the text? Let me show you. We have to start back in verse 13 of chapter 4. Look at verse 13. It's in the, the reference section in your bulletin. Flip over. It says, When they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived they were uneducated common men, they were astonished, and they recognized that they had been with Jesus. I can't think of a more humbling passage especially for us in Orange County, than this one? Who here would want this to be said of them? Oh, here's what I perceive and notice about you. You are uneducated and common. That's what it says they perceived about them. The word translated common, in some of your translations, it says ordinary. In the Greek, the word is idiotes. So you know what word we get from that Greek word, idiot. Here's what I perceive about you, uneducated, idiot. We pride ourselves in our success, our education, our achievements. We moved to Orange County so our kids can be educated and not be ordinary, but extraordinary. But here we see there was a boldness that was noticed in Peter and John. It wasn't a result of their education. It wasn't a result of anything extraordinary. About them. it came from being with Jesus. And when Peter and John hit this adversity, this boldness was shaken. They lost some of this. When they came to prayer with the church, they didn't ask Jesus, Jesus, give us intellectual power so we can prove them wrong. We'll show them who's educated. Teach us. Give us extraordinary skills so that they would see we are actually better than them. And they didn't ask for Jesus to take away their adversity. They prayed to be with him. Now, I'm not saying we don't ask for things in prayer. The Bible says, make all your requests known to God. Cast all your anxieties on Him. But look at how they ask. First, they prayed, Sovereign Lord who made everything. Creator, Sovereign, this is who you are. God knows who He is, but they're praying so they would remember. The one who faced the greatest adversity possible. Everyone was against you. All the forces were assembled against you at the cross. Judgment, death, abandonment. You faced them. For me, This is what you've done. God didn't need to remember what He'd done, but they did. And then they asked, look on their threats, give us boldness, stretch out your hand. God doesn't need to be reminded that He's the Creator and He's the Savior, but praying is how God in all of who He is and all of who He's done becomes real to us again when we've lost sight of it. What does God promise to give us? When we pray? Well, let me ask you this. What what did God give the church? They needed Him. They were praying in adversity here. What did God give to this church, to the people praying here? It says He gives what He loves to give. What He says, I love when anybody asks me for this, I love to give this. We said this a few weeks ago when we looked at Acts 1, verse 31. He gives them the Holy Spirit, which is another way of saying He gives them Himself. When they prayed, they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. Who is the Holy Spirit? He is the presence of God. He is the one who makes the person of Jesus real to us. More than an idea, more than a concept, the Holy Spirit is the presence of Jesus with us. Do you notice how the order works there? It says, God answered their prayer. He gave them the Holy Spirit and then they were filled with boldness. That's how prayer works. Why is it called the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians chapter 5? It's because often when we're praying, God, make me more loving, give me peace, give me joy. God answers those prayers by giving us Himself. It's the fruit of of the gift of the Holy Spirit, being with Him. All of who He is and all that He has done for us in Jesus, that's where the joy comes from. That's where the love comes from. That's where the boldness comes from. How can we face and endure adversity with boldness and faith, with confidence? How can we get strength to do what we believe God has called us to do when there is great adversity? Acts 4 says, pray. And most of all, pray for the Holy Spirit that all of who God is and all he has done for us in Jesus might become alive and real to us once again. I want to close with this. It's a song. I never heard of this song until I was reading this book this week. It's a gospel song called Nail Scarred Hand. I just want to close with it because I think it captures an image of the invitation this text gives us in our adversity to come, to be with Him. It says, have you failed in your plan of your storm-tossed life? Place your hand in the nail-scarred hand. Are you weary and worn from its toil and strife? Place your hand in the nail-scarred hand. Are you walking alone through the shadows dim?" Place your hand in the nail-scarred hand. Christ will comfort your heart. Put your trust in Him. Place your hand in the nail-scarred hand. Is your soul burdened down with its load of sin? Place your hand in the nail-scarred hand. Throw your heart open wide. Let the Savior in. Place your hand in the nail-scarred hand. Place your hand in the nail-scarred hand. Place your hand in the nail-scarred hand. He will keep to the end He's your dearest friend. Place your hand in the nail-scarred hand. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for this prayer. We thank you that in this prayer, we see that you do have your hand stretched out towards us already and that your hands are scarred thank you for how much that can encourage us in our adversity. That you know adversity greater than we will ever know and you faced it and you bore it for us. So that one day we might be free from all adversity and even now in whatever challenge we're facing, whenever adversities come our way, we could take comfort that you are with us. That we can grab a hold of you. And that you will never Let go of us. Encourage our hearts, strengthen us, help us endure, give us boldness. We thank you.